0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Hub and spoke. Audio collective.
0: Here's a weird one for you. It's 2012 in the Malaysian state of Malacca, around 70 miles south of Kuala Lumpur and 47-year-old Cecilia Menon was making dinner for her family. On the menu was a curry made with baby shark, which she purchased whole at market. But when Cecilia began cleaning the shark, she saw something glinting in its stomach. From it, she pulled a gold medallion. But it gets weirder. On one side of the medallion was a crucifix and an inscription, Antony. On the other was a profile of Queen Elizabeth. Not that Queen Elizabeth, though. The wife of King Dennis I. Which means the gold medallion found in the baby shark stomach in Malaysia in 2012 was minted in Portugal sometime around the year 1300. Now, sharks are known for eating weird shit. It's more common than you'd think to find one with a license plate or a tire in its belly. A tiger shark in Florida once ate a chicken coop with the chicken still in it. In 1832, a shark was caught in the West Indies swimming around with a cannonball in its stomach. The 16th century polymath Guillaume Rondelet wrote that a great white was found with an entire suit of armor inside of it. But the medallion is a whole other class of weird. It had to be made somewhere before 1325. But the Portuguese weren't around Malaysia until 1511. So it spent at least 200 years bouncing around before traveling halfway around the world and... sinking. Somehow. Maybe it was tossed or dropped. Maybe it went down with a ship. It's impossible to say. But from there, it spent 400 or so years at the bottom of the sea before it was, also quite mysteriously gobbled up by a baby shark which just so happened to then be caught by a local fisherman brought to Malacca and sold to Cecilia Manon It's almost preposterously far-fetched. Every link in that chain is so brittle and strained Just take the last part How long might a very small shark have managed to survive with a big-ass gold medallion inside of it? Even if it didn't die trying to pass it The extra weight probably would have made swimming harder, slower, more exhausting. The odds that, just having eaten a gold medallion, you as a shark, are going to die on a fishing line? This is pretty friggin' low, I'd wager. So, I don't blame the Manans for refusing to sell their find. Instead, they hung it over the mantle as good luck. And as a good story, no doubt. Out of all the license plates and cannonballs and fur coats and 50-year-old bottles of Madeira, Susila can say that she owns the strangest thing ever found inside the belly of a shark. Er, well, make that the second strangest. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I am Mark Chrysler. This is the last episode of season seven. In the last six months, we've looked at airships and accidents, phrenology, physiognomy, mesmerism, seances, Arctic explorations, a moral panic crime spree, and most of all, a century-old Chicago submarine. How could we possibly reach those dizzying heights again for this finale? Well, we probably couldn't. I uh, I miscounted and meant to conclude with that last episode, but this story? This story is something else. So let's get into it. This week's episode: Fish Story.
2: Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Cecilia Manon of this tale is Michael
0: Fitton, an English Navyman of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Fitton, is an interesting figure all around. So much so that he is the protagonist of 13 historical novels by Frank Scholl Styles, written between 1975 and 2000, including A Sword for Mr. Fitton, A Ship for Mr. Fitton, Mr. Fitton in Command, Mr. Fitton at the Helm, and, my personal favorite, having not read any of them, Mr. Fitton's Commission, which is a simply superb phrase to speak aloud. Mr. Fitton's Commission. Love it. Michael Fitton was born in Cheshire, England in 1766 and joined Her Majesty's Navy when he was 16 in June of 1780. He spent the first 23 years of his service under Captain George Keppel, who in 1780 was in command of HMS Vestal, a 28-gun frigate. The Vestal skulked around Newfoundland for a while until it discovered the USS Mercury, an American two-masted ketch that was supposed to deliver mail between the rebellious colonies and the Netherlands. Captain Keppel gave chase, ran the Mercury down, and found in its hold Henry Lorenz, the prior president of the American Congress. While the vessel was catching up to the Mercury, Fitton was working high up above deck on the yard of the 4 topgallant, the very highest and most forward-facing sail on the ship. From that position, he noticed what he thought was a man thrown overboard from the Mercury and called down below for a boat to be put in to pick him up. It turned out, it was not a man at all, but the Mercury's papers. The Americans had thrown them overboard, tied with stones to try to sink them before they were caught. But the weight had been insufficient and Vestal brought them on board. They showed that Lorenz was being sent to Amsterdam as ambassador to the fledgling and embattled United States and that the Netherlands were secretly supporting them. Lorenz was taken as a prisoner, held in the Tower of London, and England used Fitton's discovery as Cassis Belly to declare war on the Dutch. All because of Fitton's keen eye. Well, Fitton's keen eye and some conveniently buoyant papers. You begin to see why somebody might write a book or 13 about the guy. He helped seize Curacao from France in September of 1800 and then again in 1804. He captured, repelled, or sunk numerous French privateers all around the Caribbean, including the Superb, which he managed to push onto the rocks of Akoa Bay and then boarded by swimming through the ocean and climbing her hull with him and his crew carrying their swords in their mouths. Michael Fitton was an undeniable... Yo-ho, yo-ho, yo-gotta-be-kidding-me-badass. But we're only interested in the time he caught the shark. It was August 30th, 1799, and Michael Fitton was in command of the HMS Ferret, a small schooner patrolling the Mona Passage between the islands of Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, present-day Dominican Republic. It was a dangerous time for British sailors in the Caribbean since King George was at war with France, Spain, and the Netherlands, all of whom had interests, land, and guns throughout the area. But Lieutenant Michael Fitton wasn't particularly worried. He'd met up with a larger British ship a few days earlier, the HMS Sparrow, a cutter armed with ten large cannons. He and the Sparrow's commander, Hugh Wiley, had shared dinner together and decided that between their two ships, they had all the firepower they needed to keep the passage secure. They parted ways the next night, splitting off to try to chase down some possible enemies. A few days later, August 30th, 1799, as it happens, they met up once more. And that morning, Fitton signaled to Wiley, inviting him aboard the ferret for breakfast. And here, I should let Lieutenant Fitton explain things himself. Paint us a picture, Mike.
3: Whilst his boat was on her way, I seated myself on the taffrail watching her progress. The morning was cool and serene, the sea calm and transparent. The far distant rock of Altavilla was seen on the disc of the rising sun as he appeared above the horizon. Hey Mikey, no reason to get
0: straight to the point on our accounts. Go ahead and uh, gild the lily for a while if you want, yeah.
3: An eternal line of diversified coast, with Isle Lavage to leeward, the stupendous mountains of Grand Anse clothed in forests of eternal green, studded with white coffee plantains, their base concealed by a floating vapor, mingled their lofty summits with the ethereal blue of heaven. My god,
0: it's the most purple prose in the world.
3: There was something so inspiring in the whole scene, added to the cool freshness of the morning and the stillness of all around, that was worth going 5,000 miles to witness. At the risk of dying of the yellow fever, the lot of many a good fellow that I've known. He just goes and goes and goes. As I was thus seated on the stern, I observed at some distance from the vessel a dead bullock floating on the surface of the water, and some sharks busily tearing it to pieces. This did not excite my surprise, as I was then in the track of cattle-loading vessels from Puerto Cavello and La But I ordered it to be towed alongside, which was soon done, the sharks following it. Among the sharks there was one much larger than the others, which I resolved to catch and make a walking stick of his backbone by inserting a wire through it, as I had seen frequently done. I baited the hook with a four-pound piece of beef, but John Shark rubbed himself against it several times and did not seem quite to fancy it, although the others would have taken it if I had not drawn it from them. Seeing this huge fellow was rather dainty. I changed the bait for a piece of pork which, after slighting for some time, he at last bolted. With a strong effort, I fixed the hook in his jaws. As a matter of course, in his turn he sprung forward, but after playing with him a little, with about sixty fathoms of line, I had him hoisted on board. The process of dissecting him was soon commenced, and being curious to know what he had got in his stomach, it was quickly opened, when, to our astonishment, out came. Okay,
0: ready? Ready? Here it is.
3: A large bundle of papers tied up with a string.
0: (sighs) Heather? Heather? I think the podcast is broken. Sorry, everybody. Let's just uh, take a minute, listen to a quick word from our sponsor, and I promise we'll get this thing
1: working. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes?
2: Nope. Never heard that before.
1: The Constant is brought to you
0: by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness? (laughs) Yes. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe, private, convenient, online environment. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling that you can access at any time and within 24 hours of signing up. Message your counselor whenever you need to, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions. All without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, and more affordably than through traditional counseling. And if you ever want to change counselors, you can do so easily and at no charge. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has licensed professional counselors specializing in many areas which may not be accessible to you locally, including depression, family conflicts, anxiety, grief, and relationship issues. If you'd like to start living a happier life today, BetterHelp is the confidential, convenient, professional, affordable way to do it. And as a listener to this show, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash the constant. Most of the time, Thomas Briggs was a shipwright. His father started the trade in Boston in the mid-1700s, and Thomas and his brother Henry picked it up in 1789, moving the operation to Braintree. Thomas's two sons, Cushing and Henry, also went into the shipbuilding business after Thomas died, and did quite well for themselves in the 1810s and 20s. For all I know, the Briggs could still be making boats today. But at the end of the 18th century, Thomas decided to try something different than building ships. Sailing them. He and Henry, his brother Henry, not his son Henry, went into business with a couple other naturalized Germans in Boston, buying a couple of ships and sailing them as merchants. Among them was a schooner called the Nancy. On July 3, 1799, Thomas Briggs sailed the Nancy out of Baltimore with a haul of German goods. The official ship's papers explained that the Nancy was meant to unload its supplies on the island of Curaçao and then on its way back to Baltimore, it would stop in Haiti and use the money to buy a load of coffee for sale back in the States. Simple enough. But on its way to Curaçao, the Nancy got knocked off course by bad weather and Thomas Briggs steered her to shelter in Aruba. Soon the Nancy was underway again and delivered the haul at Curaçao. Then, it was time to cross northwest, 800 kilometers or so, to Port-au-Prince, to pick up the coffee. But again, the Nancy hit foul weather. Her topmast was damaged by the storm, and she just managed to limp into port at Ile Vache, a small island to Haiti's south. Once repaired, Nancy shoved off again, with clear sailing ahead and just a short bit of calm sea between her and Haiti. A short bit of calm sea, and an angry-looking British cutter. Perturbed by the sight of the fast ship and its big guns, Briggs gave orders to clue up, cut ties, and run. The Nancy didn't have a chance. The cutter came up quick and fired a shot across her bow. Thomas Briggs, it is said, scurried below decks, hoping to miss out on any immediate violence, and surrendered his ship. It was all in a day's work for Commander Hugh Wiley and his good ship, the HMS Sparrow. Hugh Wiley was described as old school, a perfect seaman who had waddled to the water as soon as he got out of his shell. He was also a drunk, a man of few words, and gruff ones as well. He spent a lot of time in the captain's quarters reading Homer. He was known for a ferocious style of close quarters fighting. Fitton said his maxim was, yardarm and yardarm. Honestly, there isn't a whole lot more I can tell you about Hugh Wiley. It doesn't seem like he ultimately distinguished himself very much. Yet, his time commanding the Sparrow is full of impressive feats. At the end of March 1799, half a year before boarding the Nancy, Wiley helped lead a raid on a Spanish outpost north of Cape Roxo, Puerto Rico. The Sparrow joined the 36-gun frigate HMS Trent, destroying battlements and emplacements, capturing two Spanish ships, and scuttling two others. Between June and October, the Sparrow, along with several other ships, including the Ferret, was helping to enforce a blockade of Haiti. Mostly, that meant hunting down or scaring off privateers and pirates, and claiming enemy merchant ships. During his time in the Mona Passage, Wiley nabbed four prizes of note. A French schooner that was carrying four guns, a Dutch schooner on its way to Mangorane, a Spanish schooner that was holding an off-the-books fortune of $2,400, and... The S.S. Nancy, captained by Thomas Briggs.
1: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a Ph.D. in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. Every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
0: Commander Wiley suspected that the humble Nancy and her gee golly shucks, I'm just a Bostonian shipwright Captain Thomas Briggs, were up to something. Just how he came upon this suspicion varies from source to source. Perhaps Wiley had been alerted to watch out for the Nancy by his higher-ups, or he thought something was strange about the ship's construction or its path, or maybe he'd somehow learned about the Nancy's waylay in Aruba. Remember, in 1799, England was at war with nearly everybody, France, Spain, and the Netherlands, all of whom had thick presences in the Caribbean. But there were also, England suspected, a lot of opportunistic Americans about who might be trying to smuggle cargo around the islands. America was neutral in all these European wars, so it was perfectly fine for them to ship assorted German goods from Baltimore to Curacao. But there was plenty of money to be made also shipping Dutch goods, as long as you weren't discovered by an English ship. Aruba was where a lot of the black market trading of the time went on. They were Dutch and known as a place where you could buy or sell just about anything. So, when Captain Briggs tried to explain that they'd been detoured there by bad weather, Commander Wiley had to roll his eyes. Oh yeah, you just happened to end up on Aruba, I'm sure. So, Wiley had the Nancy sealed and remanded, along with all cargo, papers, and crew, to Port Royal, Jamaica, on suspicion of violating American neutrality and trading with, uh, somebody. The case began to fall apart before it even got put together. On September 9th, the British Navy's Advocate General for Kingston brought suit, quote, "...to condemn a certain brig or vessel called the Nancy, her guns, tackle, furniture, ammunition, and apparel, and the goods, wares, merchandise, spices, and effects on board her, taken and seized as the property of some person or persons, being enemies of our sovereign lord and king, and good and lawful prize on the high seas, was bought in accordance with the royal proclamations. Not only did Thomas Briggs deny the charges, but he lodged a countersuit upon Wiley for unlawful detention. As evidence, he presented the papers and cargo under seal in the Nancy, which showed no signs of anything untoward. All was accounted for, and all was perfectly legal and neutral. Briggs and several others on board wrote up affidavits legally swearing that the records on board Nancy were complete and untainted. Briggs and the Nancy each looked free and clear, just like when they left Ile Vache for Haiti. Until, just like when they left Ile Vache for Haiti, a British ship got in their way. This time, it was the HMS Ferret, with Michael Fitton in command. Okay, okay. Let's remember the scene. It was August 30th, 1799, on board the HMS Ferret off of Jacmel, just south of Santo Domingo. The Ferret and the Sparrow had just been reunited, and Lieutenant Fitton has signaled for Commander Wiley to come aboard for breakfast. While he waited for Wiley's boat to row in, Fitton caught a large shark with the intent of turning its spine into a walking stick but instead discovered within it
3: a large bundle of papers
0: tied up with a string. The sailor who found the bundle presented it to Fitton as a joke, saying, I hope it's from England. Please, Your Honor, will you look if there's a letter for me? I should like to hear from my old blowing. Fitton cut the string and quickly realized what he had on hand. A full set of ship's papers, probably dropped by some smuggler under royal pursuit. He asked the lookout to climb to the crow's nest and check around for any other ships, but there were none, just the Sparrow and Commander Wiley's longboat. But then where was the ship the papers came from? Where was this SS Nancy? Just then, the boat pulled up and Wiley came aboard for breakfast. During the course of conversation, they caught up on one another's recent adventures. Why, in just the few days since last they'd met, Wiley had been through plenty. He'd seized a Dutch schooner and, what's more, detained an American brig he suspected of smuggling. Then he asked him about the shark guts all over the deck.
3: Why do you dirty your decks with those cursed animals? You'll be a boy all your lifetime, Fitton. Hmm. Tell me, Wiley, was your American brig named Nancy? Fitton asked. Yes. She was. You've met her, I suppose. No, I have not. I never saw her. And... How did you know the brig I had detained was named Nancy? Was there a supercargo on board called Christopher Schultz of Baltimore? Yes, there was. His name was Schultz or Schultz or some damn Dutch name or other. Why, you must have seen her! No, I have not. I never saw her. And how the devil came you to know I had detained an American brig called Nancy Christopher Schultz's supercargo? The shark you see lying there, my boy, has brought me full information about the Nancy and those papers you have spread out to dry are her papers. The papers on bloody
0: display upon the deck of the ferret showed a very different itinerary for the SS Nancy than Captain Briggs and his documents described in Jamaica. Rather than getting accidentally tempest-tossed to Aruba while on the way to deliver German goods to Curacao, They showed that at Aruba, Briggs had sold off his entire supply of dry goods, provisions, and lumber to the Dutch, and then bought with the proceeds a full hull's worth of guns and ammunition, which he then traded for coffee at Port-au-Prince with the French. The Nancy wasn't just trading with England's enemies, it was trading with two-thirds of England's enemies. And Michael Fitton had the evidence to prove it, thanks to... Wait, wait, let's pause a moment. Thanks to what? Let's digest the full set of circumstances here. On August 28th, Briggs Nancy was chased down by Wiley's Sparrow. That was very unfortunate because yes, Briggs was very much smuggling a whole bunch of stuff, but luckily he was carrying two sets of papers one with his actual illegal manifest and another set of dummy papers he could show the English under just such a set of circumstances as he now found himself in. So he tied up the incriminating documents, attached enough weight to sink them, unlike the Captain of the Mercury, who Fitton had helped capture ten years earlier, and threw them overboard. As the bundle sank to the bottom of the Atlantic, it flitted for just a moment in front of the curious gaze of a gigantic bull shark, let's call him Bruce, who for whatever reason said, Hey look, look, a
1: totally unappetizing unappetizing pile of paper. paper.
0: Might as well eat it. it. Then, Bruce's hunger not at all sated, he took off all the way across the southern coast of Hispaniola from Port-au-Prince to Santo Domingo, that's about a 150 mile swim, where two whole days later, he happens upon the corpse of a bull floating on the surface. Bruce starts munching down on that, along with a half dozen of his friends. Out of all of them, on an absolute lark, Matthew Fitton decides to capture Bruce so he can turn his spine into a cane, an idea he says came to him because he had seen it done. Then, with Bruce dead on the decks, one of the crew picks the papers out of his belly, hands them to Fitton, who reads enough to pick up the name of the ship At almost the exact same moment, Commander Hugh Wiley jaunts on board for a bit of brekkie. It is the justice of God by way of Rube Goldberg. This show usually concerns itself with things going wrong, but in this instance, we are talking about something going intricately, impossibly, farcically right. Forget the long shot odds of the 700-year-old Portuguese medallion. This is a straight up thermodynamic miracle unless of course you're Thomas Briggs who had everything worked out to a T and yet was caught by these most bizarre of circumstances on September 14 1799 just as Briggs case looked open and shut into Kingston walked Michael Fitton along with the papers and his signed affidavit, which not just showed Briggs had been smuggling, but also that he had perjured himself when he attested to the truth of the false papers. On November 25th, the Nancy and all of her cargo were sold on the block under condemnation proceedings and the money taken by the British Crown. Thomas Briggs left Jamaica and returned to Boston, where he decided to become a regular old landlocked merchant, leaving the nautical affairs to his sons after he died in 1810. It was said he never got over what he called the most active and unnatural piece of cruelty of being damned and condemned by a bloody sharkfish. Commander Hugh Wiley continued taking prizes all the way up through March of 1800, at least, and then he just drops off the map. I can't even find a year of death for him. Michael Fitton continued to serve bravely in the Caribbean through the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812, with his final command being the HMS Cracker, a gun brig he sailed from 1812 to 1815 in the Baltic and North Seas, with which he captured the USS America. He retired to Greenwich Hospital in 1835 and stayed there until his death in 1852. As for Bruce, Fitton had his jaws cleaned, mounted, and set to the Admiralty Court of Jamaica, where they were displayed with the inscription, Lieutenant Fitton's Compliments, and begs to recommend this jaw as a collar for the neutrals to swear through. Both the jaws and the papers that passed through them remain on display today at the Institute of Jamaica. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, and Pietro Dero voice talent by
3: hey I'm Andrew Rathgeber. I'm Andrew Bailey. Jamal James
0: special thanks go out to our Patreon supporters especially Deanna Scott and Daphne Slay if you'd like to join them in supporting the creation of this show head on over to patreon.com theconstant the constant and sign up all patrons receive access to the constant secret feed where I put bonus stories interviews sidebars and more like the show prove it through social media Go to constantpodcast.com to find our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and most especially of all, tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll be back with new episodes in 1 month on July 14th. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1955 a young George Lawson was bitten by a bull shark in Lake Michigan. Wait, really? All right, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to look into that one. Anyway, from Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant hey look a totally unappetizing pile of paper might as well eat it